Welcome to MedTech Africa, the podcast where we showcase digital health and health technology innovations from across Africa. My name is Sam Oti and I'm your host. Today, I have a very, very special guest. Not like all the other guests are not special, but this one is someone I went to college with uh, and he's gone on to do such, such great things. His name is Kingsley Indo and he is the founder of Huron AI based out of Seattle, Washington. They are on a mission to make high quality cancer care accessible to people all around the world, starting right here in the African continent. It was really great to connect with an old friend, and I'm so sure you'll enjoy this conversation. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Kingsley. Welcome to MedTech Africa. How are you doing today? And long time no see. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Dr. Oti, for having me. It's uh, really a pleasure and an honor to be here. And uh, great work you're doing. I've been following your podcast, and I can't even believe that right now I'm a, I'm a guest in, in the podcast I've been listening to all this while. Things you love to hear. And just to give the audience some context... Kinkley and I went to the same medical school many, many years ago. So really great to be reconnecting here. He is halfway across the world in Seattle. So it's, uh, I think, around 7.30 a.m. right now. Um, yeah. And he's woken up really early to talk to us about his, uh, his startup, which, by the way, is such an amazing, amazing startup. Obviously, that's why he's on the show. <laughs> so Kinsley is really, really good to have you uh, on the show and really great to connect uh, or reconnect after all this while. So we're going to be talking about your company, Huron. Um, and I really like what I see on your website in terms of what Huron is all about. Uh, you call it uh, a culturally sensitive AI solution for cancer care. Huh, that is loaded. So before we unpack that, <laughs> let us talk about yourself, first of all. What is your background? I mean, obviously, I think I've given part of it away by saying we went to medical school together. But beyond that, how did you find yourself in the digital health startup space? Yeah, no, uh, thank you for that question. Um, you know, I went to medical school in Nigeria. You know, I grew up in Nigeria, went to medical school in Nigeria. And then uh, one of the things that I've always been passionate about is improving cancer care uh, in low-middle-income settings, uh, especially when my very favorite um, and close aunt, you know, died of colorectal cancer uh, back in Nigeria. And um, I started looking for opportunities to see how I can improve uh, the system. And so that led me to come to the United States where I you know, did a, a master's degree in global health, in, in public health, focusing on global health. And, uh, and eventually I did a short-term fellowship at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center. At the time it was known as Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. And then I joined uh, the Global Oncology Group at the Fred Hutch. And that was kind of like my foray into global oncology. Um, a lot of the things I've done uh, most of my career is to, uh, you know, research and, and development activities that improves uh, cancer care and cancer outcomes in low and middle income countries, uh, specifically uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. And I've been privileged to work in a number of these uh, countries, uh, be it in improving access to um, uh, precision um, uh, cancer drugs 
or uh, knowing why women, uh, you know, present late and seeing how we can improve through policy in improving, um, you know, the, the stage of diagnosis uh, to make it early so that uh, women and cancer patients um, get the best outcome. So my, my career has mainly been focused on improving uh, cancer outcomes in, in low-middle-income countries. Um, and at the other hand, have been an entrepreneur at heart. I don't want to go into the nitty-gritties of, you know, all the businesses and things I've tried, you know, even back in medical school. But I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. And uh, the opportunity I saw was, and the problem as well that I saw was, um, you know, the, the space of artificial intelligence and application of artificial intelligence in medicine um, has been rapidly growing. Uh, before, you know, ChatGPT came out and people were like, oh, oh there's AI yeah, actually exists. But for, the, for many years, you know, that the field has been growing and there have been a lot of groups looking at how to apply artificial intelligence in improving care, either from prevention or triaging patients or picking the best medication for patients, you know, or making a diagnosis, you know, through image analysis and all whatnot. And, and what I saw was that there was just a growing, uh, a lot of these uh, applications that were being developed uh, were focused on the Caucasian, uh, you know, population. And it was more focused on, you know, advanced healthcare systems uh, context. Uh, these, uh, these technologies cannot just be taken to another country, say Brazil, and used because a lot of the data that was used to train it were not, uh, you know, uh, indigenous to that population. Um, there is very high rates of, you know, bias, both uh, from a data standpoint and from an alg algorithmic standpoint. And so uh, I saw this as a huge uh, problem. You know, we were already talking about um, cancer disparities. Uh, and now, you know, with the application of AI, these disparities are even going to grow bigger. So that, that was what motivated me to say, you know what, I, I need to jump into this space and see how we can make more culturally sensitive AI work for uh, not just advanced healthcare systems, but adaptable to, uh, to healthcare systems in Latin America or Africa or even Southeast Asia. Got it, got it. And honestly, cancer is a big, big emerging problem in the developing world, right? I, I think at some point here in Kenya, we had two ministers of health, one for public health and san uh, sanitation and one for medical services, and they both got cancer, right? And in the last couple of years, lots of prominent people have come out to say they've had, they have it, some have passed on. And these are people that we even know about, right? So, and, and even in the National uh, Referral Hospital here, every time one of the machines uh, breaks down, it creates massive, massive backlog because for people who can't afford to go to the private hospitals, um, that's, that's the one machine they all uh, rely on. So it's a massive, massive problem. And I, like you, I'm hopeful that artificial intelligence and digital technologies will help to at least uh, tackle some of that cancer disparity uh, as you framed it. So let's go into the details, right? Your company is called Huron. First of all, very interesting name. So tell us, how did you come about that name? Yeah, so it's kind of piggybacks to piggyback to what I was saying. Uh, so Huron is a Spanish word for a ferret or a weasel, and a ferret, uh, as you know, you know, have uh, three colors. It has uh, it's it's black, it's white, and brown, all in one animal. And that to me, uh, and that's also as a company, um, you know, represents data diversity. So we want to make um, data and a more diverse 
so that we can have a more encompassing um, way that uh, patients are responsive to to care. And then secondly, um, you know, a ferret is used for medical research um, for the most part. So, you know, we saw it as a cool name to, to I, I saw it as a cool name to name the company uh, Huron. We added the E to make it unique uh, because, um, you know, uh, Huron is just a Spanish word. Without the E, then we, we added the E. But yeah, that's what, because the company is mainly focused on improving, you know, care using more diverse and inclusive uh, and contextualized artificial intelligence. Got it. So break it down for perhaps the non-technical audience, because you've, you've said this a few times. You talked about the need for more uh, diverse data sources, uh, data sources for AI. What is that really all about and why is it important, particularly in the African context and, and in the developing world context? Absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll start this with, uh, I think, a couple examples. So um, let's say uh, a patient, you know, in say Kenya uh, comes to the clinic and uh, this patient is say 26 years old. Uh, they complain of fever, you know, they have night sweats and the fever is kind of intermittent and, you know, kind of they're weak. Uh, the first thing the Kenyan doctor will be thinking about is malaria. Um, that's that the first thing they'll think about. So think about algorithms that way, right? So if you're, if you're, if you're building or developing an algorithm to see um, how you can diagnose my malaria, it might be okay. Well, this person lives in Kenya, you know, comes in with fever that is intermittent. Um, and then the likely, the most likely diagnosis might, might be, will be malaria. There might be a whole other things, but that's the first thing the doctor is thinking about. Um, however, in the United States where I live, if a 26-year-old comes with, uh, you know, fever, night sweats, and just kind of the same complaint, uh, one of the first things they probably will be thinking about is Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a type of lymph node cancer. Uh, and so you can see that the, there are differences depending on the different places. And so if an algorithm was built with those inputs to make a diagnosis, uh, if that algorithm was built in the U.S., it would mostly misdiagnose a patient in, um, in, in Kenya because that's not the, it was not built to that context. Um, the, the second uh, example, uh, you know, I'd like to use to highlight uh, why data diversity and training of these models are very important is a case of colorectal cancer. And I like to use the example with Chadwick Bosman, who is the you know, famous um, American actor that unfortunately died of colorectal cancer. Uh, Chadwick Bosman uh, was diagnosed with colorectal cancer at 39 years old. At the time he was diagnosed, uh, the, the screening guidelines in the United States uh, was to start doing a colonoscopy at 50. Uh, and so Chadwick Bosman, uh, you, you know, did not live up to the age where he could uh, do uh, to, to, to have a screening done. And, and one of the reasons, I mean, there's a number of, of data points that informed that guideline, but one of the reasons um, that, that uh, the, the professional societies recommended to screen at 50 was be is because uh, the median age of diagnosis for colorectal cancer in the U.S. is 68 years. So if you start screening at 50 and you do it every 10 years, at least you you catch you you can see a poly before it becomes a cancer. Uh, but when you look at other places, other regions, and see what is their median age for diagnosis for colorectal cancer, uh, a study was done in Nigeria um, not too long ago uh, in, in collaboration with Memorial Sloan Kittering Cancer Center. 
where they found that the median age for diagnosis for colorectal cancer in Nigeria is 49 years. And for the, for the longest time, Nigerians have been using, you know, screen at 50, just like, you know, you, you know it's, it's, it happens here in America without actually paying close attention to their own data. And so when you think about it and you think about, you know, just the diversity and the epidemiology of how some of these diseases differ between racial groups or di- between different ethnic groups, um, it's pretty important to, to contextualize technology that you're building uh, based on this data. So back to the Chadwick Bosman story, if you think about the fact that, you know, African-Americans came, you know, the ancestors came from Africa, um, you, you now realize why the, the epidemiology as a whole in the U.S. differ between ethnicities, including Africans or Hispanics. And, uh, you know, and because of the increasing recognition of that, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the screening guidelines right now in the U.S. for colorectal cancer has 45. But what we want to see, where we want to see AI play a major role is to personalize these guidelines and ensure that it is uh, very responsive to, to the individual and not just, um, you know, uh, a country as a whole, or even more responsive to different sections of the population and make it more precision, precision guided. That is that is very clear. And and by the way, I'm a big fan of, of Chadwick and, and may his soul continue to rest in peace. So so you've laid the context for us very well, right? That yes, we have a rising burden of, of cancer um, across the world in the developing countries, uh, particularly. Uh, but it appears that we are not prepared from a data perspective, from a clinical guideline perspective, a health system perspective, et cetera, uh, even from a technology perspective to some extent, uh, to, to handle this, uh, this uh, rising burden of, of cancers. So you have set that uh, context very well. So what exactly is Huron all about? What are the pain points you are trying to address through AI? So the, the two major pain points we're uh, addressing or the two major problems we're uh, addressing at Huronia is one, uh, the, the deficits in the number of oncologists versus patients, which comes with a lot of its own problems. Um, in, uh, and I'll just, uh, for numbers, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, there's just one oncologist to 3,000 cancer patients. So if you think about that for a second, you know, one, one oncologist can't really continue, continually address the concerns of cancer patients. And cancer patients will always have uh, concerns, you know, symptoms, side effects from their drugs. And so uh, these patients uh, would have other pathways to address it. Um, they could go to a traditional healer. They could go to the church. They could call friends. They could use Dr. Google. So that's one major problem we're trying to solve. How can we use AI to augment uh, the work of these oncologists so that they feel like they're superhuman, um, you know, uh, even though they are few, and ensure that patients also can get remote care. So that's the first uh, problem we're solving. The second is we're leveraging our platform, we're, we're tailoring our platform to, to ensure that pharma companies can, can conduct uh, global phase three trials and other clinical trials in Huron partner sites to help with diversifying their clinical trial participant pool. And just for numbers, here in the U.S., if you look at the last 20 years of FDA-approving cancer drugs, um, the participants in those trials, only less than 3% were of African descent and less than uh, 6% of Hispanic descent. So a lot of the data we know or we have of cancer drugs 
it's not the, the there's still a huge gap in the knowledge because uh, it's not well representative of different uh, population groups. And there's uh, evidence to show this. Um, there, there are studies that now show that there are certain drugs that uh, have even worse side effects on certain groups uh, than, than other you know, racial groups. And, and so what, what we're trying to do is we're trying to ensure that uh, you know, pharma companies can um, have like sort of a soft land, you know, lower the bar for them for entry in some areas that uh, might be blind spots. Uh, for clinical trials, so that we can generate, so that we can uh, essentially uh, have a result that is reflective of uh, diverse populations. And so, the way Huron AI, uh, Huron AI launched in Rwanda um, in what we call beta testing, and a lot of people would know that as a pilot. Um, so we we launched at the Rwandan Cancer Center, where we uh, focused on breast cancer patients can, um, you know, once patients are diagnosed, we, we know cancer is very complex, so we're solving it from the treatment standpoint for now. And so when patients are diagnosed, um, you know, they're registered on our software and uh, from the inbuilt algorithms we have, patients will have questions that are tailored to the drugs that they are taking. So they will have questions asking them about like their side effects, you know, how they're doing, and patients can easily just answer these questions and grade their side effects, you know, subjectively. Is it worse? Is it moderate? Is it mild? And uh, true. And then um, we have a, a platform where, you know, the doctors and the nurses can see how all their patients are doing um, in a very intuitive way, um, the way we designed, you know, the, the user interface. And so doctors can essentially, um, you know, send a message to a patient that goes to their phone as a text. And uh, these messages um, are already automatically generated uh, through generative AI and, and inbuilt algorithms that we've built in our system. And all the doctors or the nurses need to do is to review the message. So it will actually send a message uh, where the patient can, can take action. Yeah. And so, and so yeah, so that's, uh, that's uh, how um, our system works. And, and patients don't need to have, uh, they don't need to have uh, internet connection. Um, they can use their mobile phones. And that's why we see we're culturally sensitive because we're considering the context of where we work. And so, um, you know, they, they get these messages. Uh, nurses can also call. They don't need to, like, take, pick up their phone and call a patient. They can actually call on our platform. You know, our software can summarize those messages into clinically relevant notes. Um, we're also working on models that can predict who's going to have the worst side effects even before you know, doctors start their medications. So it's a way, it's a way that uh, doctors and patients can interact, but it's also a way that empowers doctors to address, um, uh, to address uh, side effects or new symptoms from patients. And, and, and patients are able to get these interventions remotely without having to spend money to come to the system and overwhelm the already overburdened system and just make, uh, you know, treatment more efficient and augmented from the from the oncology care team side. That is very impressive. So if I'm hearing you right and correctly, so two main gaps that you're trying to address. First of all, the shortage of oncologists and uh, uh, cancer care uh, professionals. And so would it be right to sort of characterize um, your platform as some kind of virtual physician uh, assistant that is backed by or powered by by AI? Uh, and before you answer that, and, and then secondly, if I'm also hearing you correctly, you're also trying to solve for the problem of lack of uh, representativeness 
in clinical trials involving uh, cancer drug uh, research and, and development. H- have I understood you correctly? Absolutely. I think you summarized it in the, in the perfect way, yes. Perfect. So, so tell us more about this. Uh, so, so I re- I really understand the the side of you know the the let's call it the virtual uh, physician assistant, right? Uh, this is something that people can install on their phones and helps the doctor to monitor and nurses and other healthcare professionals to to monitor them um, virtually. Um, but what about the side of the clinical uh, the drug development? It's still not clear. How exactly are you adding value? in that space? Yeah, so there, there are two things. So first, our software is now currently being tailored to, uh, to do all aspects of, of um, a clinical trial from recruitment of patients to data management, you know, and even um, having uh, algorithms that can, that can select eligible participants. And so since our software is already um, being used to track and manage patients in these cancer centers, um, we are doing reports. We're currently like we're doing one right now in in Lagos, Nigeria, where you know we we show pharma companies like what the capability of a center is, and um, you know we leverage our software to ensure that we can manage. Um, uh, they can host a, number one host a clinical trial there uh, based on that center's capability, and we can use our software to to manage all aspects of uh, the clinical trial and. You know, the pharma industry and, you know, clinical research organizations, um, there's a reason why a number of African countries are blind spots to them when it comes to clinical trials is because, um, number one, you know, they, they might not have, you know, certain capabilities like genomics or they might not have, um, you, know, um, you know, systems that can address side effects when they happen, which is very important for uh, experimental drugs. Uh, this can be huge. Uh, this can bring huge liability to the pharma company if something gets goes wrong. So what we are doing is to address what you're doing as a company is to address those um, those uh, you know obstacles or those challenges that pharma you know would face um, if they attempt to do clinical trials uh, in these regions. And so that that's where we are, we play a role. We we basically um, help pharma with all that, and and uh, they can host a seamless trial. Uh, when they have trials open, and on the other hand, I mean the 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 value add to those centers is uh, when a clinical trial is being hosted, um, it not only improves capacity for the clinicians there, both research and clinical capacity, but um, it also um, gives patients a conduit to have like new experimental drugs and you know their their whole treatment paid for. Because when when a patient is eligible for a trial, um, they're contributing to science. But at the same time, every other thing that they're doing about their care, about cancer care, is being funded because that's where funds for clinical trials go to. So um, we're we're playing a dual role of helping pharma and CROs to come into these spaces and also enhancing the the centers that use Huron, Huron software. Got it, and I, I know a number of companies that are that are doing that, but none that has really really has this focus on on Africa or excluded populations, so to say. So you talked about uh, already launching in uh, Rwanda. So let's talk about uh, your achievements so far. Uh, what are the kind of milestones uh, that you've hit, um, and uh, what are some of the wins? Yeah, so uh, in Rwanda, because this we when we launched in Rwanda, it was in the context of research, and so it's not like 
you know, we said, okay, we're going to use trial render, but it was a context of research and we learned so many things. Um, number one, uh, we were able to just learn how the software works in the field. And, you know, our engineering team was able to um, adjust and tailor our software to really fit the user. And one thing I'll mention, you know, before I go to the milestones is uh, the way we've built, uh, the way we've developed, you know, our company has been always from the user perspective. So whatever we're doing, we're, we're making sure that we're engaging with the major stakeholders, which includes patients, you know, patient advocates, uh, doctors and policymakers, so that we tailor our software to really serve, you know, the user, uh, which is the patients and the doctors. And so we learned, uh, we learned quite a bit. And, uh, you know, we are just um, in the process of publishing a paper um, in the Journal of Global Oncology uh, that details our learnings and, you know, um, how patients perceived our software and how that helped patients to reduce costs uh, from traveling to the hospital. And, you know, if in, in Rwanda, you know, we had our system pick up nine emergency cases automatically and patients were able to reach uh, the hospital because uh, software alerted that there's an emergency, you know, things like febrile neutropenia. Um, I know some people in the audience might not be doctors, but febrile neutropenia is just a fever um, that occurs when the white blood cell count is almost zero. Uh, and uh, that, that could be fatal to patients. And our, our system was able to alert patients of those potential emergencies um, we had over 5,000 messages uh, sent back and forth from interactions patients had with our software. And there was over 95% completion rate uh, when patients get prompts to answer. And they had interventions, you know, over five, 258 interventions uh, that patients got from the responses they, they gave. And overall, you know, from our survey and focus group discussions, patients found it very helpful. Physicians also found it very efficient for them because they are not being inundated, at least for the patients that they were seeing on our software. Uh, we focused on breast cancer in this launch. They were not getting WhatsApp messages, uh, you know, or patients calling them, you know, when they're having lunch with their uh, families. So that was, uh, that was really insightful in Rwanda. Now, we're we're now taking those learnings as we continue to push and advance things in Rwanda. We're now taking, uh, you know, those uh, learnings and wins to to work on uh, licensing agreements. Uh, we're currently working on licensing agreements in three different countries. Um, Kenya, where you you are, um, uh, Nigeria, and uh, Brazil. And we're, we're pretty excited about, about this. Um, we, uh, you know, our work in Rwanda was also recognized uh, by the White House Cancer Moonshoot as a promising uh, technology to, to bridge the gap in cancer care in uh, low middle income countries. Um, and we were also inaugural, one of the inaugural winners of the Amazon Health Equity uh, Initiative that has supported um, us in, uh, in, in cloud computing. Uh, uh, for our company. And we're just about to have another extension to, uh, by Amazon to support. Uh, to support these efforts. Wow, really amazing stuff and amazing progress that, that you've made so far. So I think I should have asked this question a bit earlier on. How are you making money? Because at the end of the day, <laughs> uh, you, have to, you have to sustain yourselves, right? Uh, and you talked about licensing agreements. So could you unpack that a little bit for us so that the audience can understand? Yeah, so uh, as you uh, know, because you've interviewed several digital health companies, um, uh, in, in medical technology or in the digital health space, 
um, you, you have to show, you know, you have to first, you know, um, do tests and, you know, uh, prove your software to work and, you know, prove the value of your software. So we've done, we've done most of that, like in Rwanda. Um, so now we're getting into the nitty gritty of business. And so our licensing agreement, uh, one way, uh, the company is going to be making revenue. We're still a pre-revenue company, but uh, we're now, uh, you know, uh, essentially we've been executing our go-to-market strategy from, you know, first starting with beta testing. Now um, we're showing, uh, you know, clients, uh, potential clients, you know, what the value is. So, yeah, so we're pretty excited about this uh, uh, software license agreements because that would now dictate, um, you know, uh, or bring in revenue to the company. And then obviously, um, you know, we talked about the pharma angle. We're going to commercialize on, on, on that sense. Uh, uh, you know, we're going to commercialize uh, several aspects of, you know, both, um, you know, anonymized data, you know, machine learning insights, um, you know, the use of our software, you know, for clinical trials or even, um, you know, re reports we're going to be uh, giving to CROs and, and pharma. So, uh, you know, to, to answer your question in a very short-winded way, um, we're a pre-revenue company, but we're we're just on our road to to go to market. Got it. So I'm sure it's not been an easy journey. What has been keeping you up at night? Absolutely. You know, uh, starting a, 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 a tech startup, med, especially med tech startup, obviously it's a lot of resources um, that is needed to hit the ground running, um, you know, pay invoices, pay engineers and all that. So um, yeah, so the company, um, I, I think a big thing that keeps me up at night is, uh, uh, you know, making sure that the company is moving in the right direction vis-a-vis -vis our resources. Uh, we started um, with just bootstrapping. So I started the company just bootstrapping with my own money. And then, you know, I was able to raise, uh, you know, um, just a little over $150,000 early this year from just a pre-seed family and friends investment. And now we're on the road to close a $2 million investment, uh, seed round investment to support this expansion efforts. Obviously, we're raising money in a very volatile mar market, uh, but we have a number of interested investors and we're also um, just um, about to close with a couple of investors that want to lead the round. And so I'm, I'm looking forward, uh, we are looking forward as a company to closing our seed round for uh, $2 million. You know, soon, uh, this discussion takes time, but, uh, you know, soon we're, we're, we're looking to close at least before the end of July uh, to support this effort. Uh, obviously, the other thing uh, that, that just keeps me up at night is, um, you know, um, looking at what is happening in the ecosystem and ensuring that we are not, we are thinking about the right things. Uh, we're thankful to have, uh, you know, excellent world-class board advisors that uh, contributes in several ways to ensure that uh, we as a company we're operating in the ecosystem in a way that uh, you know we we maintain our innovativeness and uh, and our impact. Got it. Always important to to remain uh, ahead of the curve. And all the best with your with closing your seed funding round and and with future uh, rounds of of, of fundraising. Um, I've said it a number of times on the podcast, uh, how I'm really impressed with the way Rwanda as a government is just creating an enabling environment for tech startups, health tech startups to to thrive. Um, but now you're thinking about scaling out or scaling up beyond Rwanda. So my question for you then is, 
What would be your ask of policymakers across the continent? What would you ask them to do to create a more enabling environment for companies like yours to thrive? Well, that's an excellent question. So first and foremost, most African countries do not have, you know, regulations around data and how, you know, digital products are approved. And so companies are just in the dark because, uh, you know, if you go to a regulator in a, comp- in a country, they're all designed for drugs. And so there needs to be quick scaling and, you know, efforts on the regulatory standpoint uh, so that uh, tech companies uh, or meta companies know exactly what is required, you know, in those countries. Uh, the second thing is, uh, you know, how patient data is managed. Um, a lot of times, uh, you know, uh, a number of African countries will require that, you know, the data remains in the country and, uh, you know, not in the cloud, which is, all, you know, counterproductive. Um, I understand, you know, protecting patient data, you know, having service in the country, but a lot of, uh, you know, artificial intelligence is run in the cloud and all the tools are in the cloud. So there should be laws and there should be, you know, regulations around that so that um, whatever regulations that are in place does not stifle um, innovation and uh, the, the growth of precision medicine through artificial intelligence. Um, you know, and thirdly, you know, just having uh, internet, you know, just, uh, you know, just infrastructural, uh, you know, infra- infrastructural uh, components like, uh, you know, what was the internet coverage? Uh, for now, you know, we have been able to to expand without um, uh, patients even having, you know, internet because we've innovated around text messaging, you know, for patients. So it's quite inclusive. Uh, but when, if, you know, it wants data, it remains very expensive in these countries. Uh, you know, um, a company, if, if patients are experiencing a company that have not really innovated like us, uh, they might miss out on certain services that might be beneficial to them because data is just so expensive um, to, to, to have access to. So, so things around like, uh, you know, uh, making internet more accessible, um, not just to the middle class or upper middle class, but also to, to those in the social, uh, lower socioeconomic uh, rung, I think would be very helpful, not just in digital healthcare, but in assessing several other uh, services like financial services that still ties um, or is, is a social determinant to health. Um, so those are, I think those are the buckets, um, you know, I would, uh, I would urge governments to, to look into. And I can tell you that even in the United States, um, the FDA has had to, uh, you know, really, really innovate fast on how uh, the, the um, or even the, they're still playing catch up on how to, um, to approve AI products and how to, you know, navigate the digital health space. Because when you compare what these regulatory agencies have been built to do, uh, they've, been, they've been built to uh, approve medical devices and drugs. And so when you talk about artificial intelligence, where the goalpost is not in a static direction, because the more data you acquire, the more precise it gets, or maybe there could be a problem that will arise. You know, the efficacy could get better, or maybe there's another problem or a huge algorithmic bias might be seen. So um, regulatory agencies around the world are, are thinking through these things. And I think African governments should also jump in so that they're not left in this uh, innovative 
um, space that has a huge potential for positive impact and better patient outcomes in cancer and in healthcare generally. Well, there you have it, folks. I, I don't know if African policymakers listen to podcasts. <laughs> they seem to prefer newspapers. <laughs> but just in the off chance that there's anyone listening to, the, to, to this podcast, there you have it. Couldn't have said it better. They need to, they need to do things differently. They need to reform the regulatory space. Uh, they need to create that infrastructure to close the digital divide. Well, on that note, Kinsley, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. I know you'll be coming to Kenya. Oh, I'm hoping you'll be coming to Kenya uh, very soon. Uh, and uh, whenever you're here, please look me up. Absolutely. I'll definitely hit you up. And uh, yeah, we can we can have, we can talk more and uh, catch up on other things. But but thank you. It's, a, it's really an honor um, to be here and to share uh, Huron's story and to share our vision. Thank you so much for the great work you're doing and uh, for, you know, spreading the word about, uh, you know, the digital health uh, revolution in, in Africa and elsewhere. Thank you so much for your work uh, to you and your team. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. MedTech Africa is produced and hosted by Sam Oti and co-edited by yours truly, Veronica Sander Ochiambo. The goal of MedTech Africa is to provide a platform for showcasing digital health and health tech innovations across the African continent. Please reach out to us if you have any thoughts on this episode or recommendations of African health innovators that you'd like us to host on the show. You can find our contact details in the episode show notes. Finally, be sure to subscribe to MedTech Africa on your preferred podcast platform. And if you have a moment, please leave us a great review because it really helps other people to find the show. Thanks again for listening and we hope you join us in our next episode.